you are on the panel, RNZ National, Sue Kedgley and Stephen Jacoby with me now due to a breakdown on State Highway 1. The right middle southbound lane is blocked after Gillies Ave. This is just a 4pm update too. So pass with care and expect delays. That's a State Highway 1, a Southern Motorway breakdown. Uh, also on the West Coast, a serious crash has been reported to emergency services on State Highway 6 near Meadows Road. And yeah, look, a lot of response to this uh, particular story here. Uh, the high-quality four-lane highway, excellent idea. Much safer, more efficient and aid to national productivity and a lessening of travel times, says one. Uh, another one says, Wallace, I'm not leaping and dancing with joy. I'm leaping and dancing with fury at the lazy, cynical fishing for the blinkered need for speed boaters. Uh, so on that, a big transport announcement today from National, a $24 billion transport package, a proposal that includes a four-lane highway from Whangarei to Tauranga, linking Whangarei and Port Marston, Walkworth and Wellsford, and further south from Cambridge to Piarere, and on State Highway 29 to Tauriko West. The money, that'll come from the National Land Transport Fund, it'll come from tolls also and government investment with no increase in exercise taxes and Chris Bishop from National now he says the 7.4 billion dollar let's get Wellington moving program it's a toxic mess that'll be gone burgers instead a four-lane highway to the airport and an east-west arterial route linking Tawa with the Hutt Valley and a second road tunnel under Mount Vic no to light rail in Auckland, Wellington, and public transport will include a rapid transit network in Auckland with transport corridors in the northwest, Botany to airport, and the full eastern busway. So a lot in there with us to dissect and discuss. Matt Lowry from the Greater Auckland Transport side. Matt, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. How do you see this announcement, Matt? Pretty significant, $24 billion. Is this a revision of sorts of the roads of national significance? Remember those? Yeah, it is. And you, you, I guess you can't say that national doesn't recycle when they've recycled this policy from mostly from 2020, which was mostly recycled from 2017. So, um, yeah, there's definitely some recycling going on there. Uh, but look, uh, if we're driving around the country... Of course, you would like to be driving on a four-lane highway, but that's not the basis for a good transport policy. And what National have, have suggested here is, is like appears to be very undercooked and very uh, biased in terms of where it's funded and what it's funding. And so, you know, what what we fund, you know, what we build grows, uh, what we feed grows. And so, um, if we're going to build a lot more roads, we're going to get a lot more traffic. We're going to get a lot more emissions and the negative impacts that come with that. Even if these roads will be safer, there will still be other other issues that come with them. And uh, already it's looking like they've, they've undercosted a lot of these projects with the, the, the cost coming, estimates coming out now being substantially higher than what National have suggested. Yeah, well, look, just on that, just on the experiential uh, aspect of roads, because, you know, that, uh, that text, I'm leaping for joy at this. It is a thing of beauty, Matt, to drive the 100 k's of the Waikato Expressway. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's safe. It's an easy drive. And Simeon Brown saying here, I think that most New Zealanders who have driven that expressway can see the benefits that is provided to our country economically, socially, and also from a safety perspective. And many people, Matt, will agree with him. Yeah, then they will, and and I, I agree. If you're driving on the Waikato Expressway, it's it's fantastic compared to driving on a on a typical state highway in New Zealand. But the reality is, that most state highways in New Zealand just don't have the traffic volumes to justify that kind of investment. If we look at 
the walkworth to wellsford section that's proposed um, you know the national say it's going to cost 2.2 billion uh, the latest figures are saying it's more like four billion dollars uh, that's uh, that's a road that you know, four billion dollars is larger than anything we've spent on on transport on a single transport project other than the city rail link so far in, in our history and that's for a road that carries about 12,000 vehicles a day so you know that's Waikato Expressway carries about twenty five to 30,000 a day. So we're talking a significant investment, much more expensive than anything we've built, and for a fraction of the volumes. So it, it's very expensive for, for what it is, and, that, and that's the real challenge is that, um, yes, there are some issues. We, we absolutely need to address many of the issues on our road. We need safer roads. We need, for example, more passing opportunities. We need more median barriers and all those sorts of things. Uh, but but doing it through these sort of, these sort of programs is a very expensive right. way to do it with very little benefit from it. And Sue there, um, uh, let's get Wellington moving. Uh, possibly Gomburgers, although that's kind of gone through now, hasn't it? What's, what, what, what of that for you, Sue Kidgley? Well, it's going to be very interesting because, um, you know, the, the, the pedestrianising of, of the Golden Mile, that is supposed to start in September... Construction right. is supposed to start, and allegedly the money has all been approved. So it's going to be interesting to see if they're going to be able to um, kill that. I think that's what um, uh, they were saying, they're going to kill it. And, I mean, obviously, light rail, I'd say that was starting to look a bit like a distant dream because it's it's already $7.4 billion. Uh, but... Um, it, it will be interesting. The other thing I was just wondering, Matt, um, they, the National Party keeps trying to justify this, you know, as, as we uh, face our climate emergency, by saying, oh, yes, but we're going, don't worry because we're going to be electrifying the fleet of cars. But the cars only make up 1.7% of our $5 million car fleet. And also... If that's the justification, why has the the National Party opposed every incentive to electrify cars, such as the clean car incentive? Yeah, well, the, the reality is that, that electric cars are a long... You know, yes, we've got a number on our roads now. 1.7%. Yeah, to get, to get the number in our, in our fleets, even even at the best estimates from, from the Climate Change Commission, from the Ministry of Transport, you know, we're looking at maybe 30 to 40% within the next 10, 15 years. Of, of, of the entire vehicle fleet. So there, yes, there'll be a reduction in emissions from that, but there's still a huge amount of um, of non-electric vehicles will be on the roads and trucks and, and everything. And it, it doesn't address other issues like congestion, like safety. Those all still exist as a result of it. And in fact, because electric vehicles are a bit heavier, they can also cause additional road damage on top of what we already see. So it could also increase maintenance issues as well. Stephen. Well, I don't know whether those roads are the best roads to be built or, or not. And um, uh, Wallace, I agree with you that uh, driving in my hybrid uh, along Transmission Gully is quite a pleasurable experience. But my point is, and I'd like Matt's view on this, my point is that these should not be decisions left up to politicians. I frankly am sick and tired of one political party saying it's going to do A, B and C only for you know six years later another one to come along and say it's going to do X, Y and Z. Matt, don't we really need an independent commission to work out where the road should be and, and uh, what the best choices uh, should be made, incorporating, you know, aspects like climate change uh, in their design. 
Yeah, I think I think there is a, a, definitely an argument that we need we need less politics in, in our transport sector. Um, unfortunately, I think one of the problems is that that the politics exists in there regardless of who's in power, and that and that is you know individuals who work in these sectors also have their views and their biases around around transport projects, and and they, they don't always follow the evidence themselves, and so. Um, it's kind of a you know, if you do that, do it one way, you might get you still might get perverse outcomes, and yes, so it'd be good to get some of the politics out of that and get and get a, you know less of it being a, a you know a, a bag of, of who can who can fund the most and who can who can promise the best um, and win the most than, votes. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. Okay, Matt, thank you for that. That's Matt Darrow there from Greater Auckland. Uh, yes, uh, needless to say, a bit of response from uh, that. Um, is it fair to say, though, Sue, that Let's Get Wellington Moving has been slow? It's been a slow oh, process. painful. I mean, you know, why has it been so uh, taken such an excruciatingly long period yeah. of time? Part of the reason is exactly what... Uh, you were saying that, that one one government comes in and says we you know they're going to build the Mount Victoria Tunnel. The next one is comes in and says no, right. we're going to do something different. And then we it would, it would be wonderful if we could get a consensus around uh, these sort of issues. But it does seem to be uh, 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 that's a distant dream. Okay, uh, text me two one zero one. How do you uh, react to uh, the national policy of wanting to build uh, more roads, safer roads, roads perhaps better quality, uh, uh, not unlike the Waikato Expressway? Eighteen pass for the panel. By the way, we are on iHeart, we are on Apple, and on Spotify. Now uh, to this, it's hard to ignore the scale of weather-related events right now. We're all watching it, aren't we? It's a nightmare scenario playing out in many parts of the world, whether it be in Europe or parts of the US. Phoenix, Arizona, 43 degrees Celsius for 13 days straight, nights never below 32 degrees. Says the Washington Post, in these extremely hot days, even tiny mistakes, they have grave consequences. Mason an 18-month-old slipped through the pet door, stepped onto the concrete patio, screaming within seconds he has second-degree burns. Pavements are registering 71 degrees Celsius or hotter. The Arizona's saguaro cactus, a symbol of the U.S. West, they thrive in the heat. They're dying. It's too hot for the cactus. It's been dubbed the summer of global warming. With us is Professor Bronwyn Hayward from the University of Canterbury. Professor Hayward, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace. Thanks for having me. Well, look, I tell you what, when you <laughs> when you take a snapshot of the news around the world, I mean, we just had a colleague back from Turkey, um, loved the place, but daytime tourist activities cancelled, can't go. It's too hot. Does this intensity... Surprise, even the likes of yourself. Um, surprise isn't the right word, but I think from working on the intergovernmental panel for climate change for the last decade, I think despair is kind of the feeling a lot of my colleagues and I know I feel. It's um, the first time I've had a colleague who's got a child who plays elite sport and collapsed after the heat. Um, we write about this, we warn about this, and then watching it unfold is pretty grim. 
What does the Northern Summer of Global Boiling, as it was called uh, by the United Nations, what does it mean for us here in Aotearoa? Well, I think the big issue that we've got, um, Sam Dean, who's the chief scientist for NEW, put it really well in the weekend, you know, we're looking at the hottest July on record in 100,000 years, and we keep breaking records now. So we can see climate change happening, but as a political scientist working on the um, on the IPCC, what worries me is the new research that's coming out of the United States, which shows that um, when they ask people if you can see climate change in your local community, over half of the population say yes, um, and they can see it quite a lot, you know, but only 10% of Republicans can see it. 40% of, of Democrats say they see it quite a lot in their local area. So that polarization is a huge problem because it means that people are hearing this kind of news, they'll be listening to this interview and filtering it depending on their political biases and what they want to hear, not what we're observing and what we know that, from science. That and that's me, a real problem. That to me sounds quite weird because if I was in a 13-day day of 43 degrees Celsius and nights not below 32 degrees, uh, I, I, I'd want a solution. I know, but I just saw a Fox News article go past that said, you know, scientists aren't explaining to us why this happened three decades ago. Well, it might have happened in the 1930s once, but what we're seeing is this repeat of these extreme events growing and growing, and that's the significance, that mm. it's not just the one-offs, but it's the cumulative effect over time. So it is a huge worry, but it also means, I was listening to your debate about roads previously, um, New Zealand has brought in a climate commission, and I think one of the attempts that why cross-party agreement happened for that was that when we're not in the middle of an election, politicians can agree we need to get some of the politics out and we need to actually protect our communities. It's just that when push comes to shove in an election, no one wants to be the person that does that. So what would be ideal and what parties really should be doing is if they're campaigning on something like increasing roads, then show us how that reduces emissions. How does that also reduce emissions. If you're opening a four-lane highway, what are you doing to reduce emissions overall from transport? Will one of those lanes be a public bus lane? How will you ensure that you don't get the inducement demand effect? Every time we build a road, build it and they will come. We get more congestion as more and more people use it. So unless we're going to actually have an active plan that goes hand in hand with our schemes for transport that shows how we're going to reduce emissions, then we're only doing half the job. So I think the debate should be, if we want a safer road and we want better roads, how are we going to reduce emissions at the same time? Right, let's go and on. Wales so has on. really had to do that. Their Future Generations Commission has really um, you know, bitten the bullet and they're actually looking at every roading project in that sense. Oh, I think I've, yes, I, I think someone has uh, mentioned the Future Generations Commission in Wales uh, on the panel. Uh, let's start with Stephen on this. Uh, well, uh, kia ora, Bronwyn, um, and um, ora. always good to hear your insights on the subject of climate change, and thank you for the work that you do. Uh, um, I mean, just on the commission idea, of course, that's the sort of thing I was thinking of with the Roading Commission, but the Climate Commission is another one which was designed, as you say, to take the politics out of climate change. Uh, the current government hasn't always, um, you know, listened to the Climate 
commission's advice no. and that's been the problem but but i wanted to ask you this and it's about public it's about your comment about you know public perceptions whether from a political bias or what have you but um you know i wonder if, if you think that message is getting through at all that climate change makes these extreme temperatures more likely it doesn't necessarily mean it's hot all the time but it although it does mean it's hotter on average but it's these extremes that we're seeing around the world um and it, i just wonder if that is becoming more aware in public perception that you may have been definitely. able to measure yes definitely the ipsos um surveys which run every year show this year, 80% of New Zealanders now think climate change is a significant issue and they want government to take action on it. And that's up from 76% last year. And it's gone up year on year. It's gone up. I mean, that's one of the things that makes me feel better about this is that people are starting to understand it's an issue. But Ipsos also shows that we're incredibly confused about what we should do about it. So most New Zealanders think we should recycle. And actually, recycling is a good thing as long as you're reducing your overall consumption, but it's not tackling our transport emissions. And our transport emissions mean thinking about things like how we get around and get away. So not lots of short flights shopping in Melbourne. Go If you go, fly economy and stay longer and reduce the number of flights you have. And the same with your car trips. Try and reduce at an individual level, reduce your car trips um, by two a week at least, by car sharing or doing something like biking or walking. But this is difficult, particularly for rural communities and for disabled and older people. So at the same time, we do need our cities to be thinking overall around the world, cities are responsible for 70% of carbon emissions. So. They need to have a plan, not just a fight between bike lanes and car parks, right. but a plan to reduce emissions overall. Sue. Yes, Kia ora, Bronwyn, I agree with all that you were saying. I wonder, has the National Party, will it have estimated how much all these massive new motorways will increase our emissions by? Are they requ required to do that? That was one question. And you're talking about people being confused, but is it also a little bit well, I'm, I'm really worried about climate change, but I don't really want to change. You know, I don't, I want to keep doing what I'm doing and it all just seems uh, a bit overwhelming. And also, I was just sort of wondering with these extreme temperatures that we've been talking about in China and California and that, are we, event are we going to have to start abandoning some of these cities? I mean, at what point do they actually become unlivable? If you can fold that into a uh, one response, uh, sorry for <laughs> well, the time frame, not wrong. Yeah, well, working backwards, um, in Spain, they're already working in cities like Barcelona to make sure that within walking distance, five minutes of every household, there'll be a refuge or a place where you can go to keep cool. Oh, really? And that's already, already they've got oh. 10 minutes, but they're trying to reduce, reduce it down to, to five minutes walk. Wow. Um, mm. So cities are taking this very seriously. It? Yeah. it is. Um, the Climate Commission will require governments to show how they're going to meet the climate budget. So I would ask Good. all parties, how do your plans meet those budgets? And then citizens need to hang on to the leverage that we've got. The Climate Commission is there for us. Let's use it. Are our parties meeting our requirements under the Paris Agreement and for the future for all of us?
Nice one. Professor Bronwyn Hayward there from the University of Canterbury. Someone says, uh, look, uh, we need, uh, uh, there's a bit of interest in in the idea of independent management of our infrastructure. Someone says, bring back the Ministry of Works. They always got things done. Well, did they? Uh, and New Zealand benefits from their contributions, says Paul from Pukanui. Anyway, 28 past four. Thanks for your contributions this afternoon. Monday's panel, Sue Kedgley and Stephen Jacoby, on a completely different topic. Very different. Do you bother with small talk? One article said the French have the right idea. They go right in with the big questions, such as, what's your deepest desire at this very moment, as opposed to, How's it going? What do you do? The French do not ask questions about work. The writer, Ajiriaki, said moving to France has changed her in infinite ways, especially when it comes to meaningful conversation. Do we need to step up our small talk in New Zealand have, and have deeper chats? Can we handle the depth? Stephen, I mean, if I asked you, what's your deepest desire at this very moment? How would you respond? A Mr. Whippy in the backyard? Well, I would respond what? in a very French fashion. I'm really looking forward to dinner. Yeah, so... Dinner this evening. I lived for seven years in France, and uh, food is the most, by far the most lively uh, topic of, of, of conversation. No one ever asked me what my deepest desire was, I don't oh, think. Oh, they didn't? But I seven think, years living there? <laughs> no, no one managed to ask me. But they asked me a lot about um, uh, what I thought of this food or that food. And, and you know, one thing we always remember about living there was that people would remember literally years later what you bought or served at a dinner they attended at your home. Quite extraordinary. But I do think wow. that the art of conversation is dying. And as a former diplomat who specialised, of course, in small talk, of course I'd be in favour of bringing it back. So you would, be a, you're a, you, you would have had to have been a master of small talk. Stephen. Terribly important. You've got terribly important the way you touch that off the conversation, though, you know. Well, give us an example. That's right. Give us an example. Well, I think you would. You try to, I think you would start a conversation by trying to find points of common interest. So you would, uh, you know, you might start off by asking about books and and films and all that sort of thing uh, to get on later on to the the more um, media conversations of, you know, trade or climate policy. Well, well, how do you how about that, Sue? What are you? Wasn't it Muldoon who famously bypassed small talk, couldn't stand it? Um, could well have, could well be Wallace. I don't recall that. But oddly enough, I, I thought the French had a reputation for being rather rude uh, and arrogant, particularly if you didn't speak their language brilliantly. But anyway, I I do agree that we yes we we. You know, we, uh, small talk is important, or just trying to connect with ordinary, everyday people, and we probably aren't terribly good at that. I think the weather seems to be a, a good fallback um, in New Zealand, but honestly, if someone said to me, out of the blue, if you could live in any decade or year, what would it be, or what is your deepest desire at this very minute, I'd sort of, um, you know, roll my eyes and sort of move along. That would be inappropriate, wouldn't it? But why would you roll your eyes at that? <laughs> It was just so ridiculous. Why? Why is it ridiculous? Isn't that isn't that the fundamental to to find out and know what your deepest desire is? Well, it is eventually, but to yeah. sort of come up to someone and um, what is your deepest desire at this very moment, uh, Wallace? I think that's uh, absolutely ridiculous. Ah. Anyway, anyway, do you value small talk or do you think you should get straight to it like the French do? Uh, that is. 
conversation. Uh, 28 to 5, the panel are NZ National. The music whisperer in two minutes, uh, here they are. And if only I could, I'd make a deal with God and I'd get him to swap our places, be running up that road. What's the song? 2101. It's time for headlines.